Book Two, Chapters One through Fifteen of Commentaries on the Gallic War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Commentaries on the Gallic War by Julius Caesar, translated by Thomas Rice Holmes. Book Two, Chapter One: The First Campaign Against the Belgae. While Caesar, as we have mentioned above, was wintering in Cisalpine Gaul, frequent rumors reached him, which were confirmed by dispatches from Labienus, that the Belgae, whose territory, as we have remarked, forms a third part of Gaul, were all conspiring against the Roman people, and exchanging hostages. The motives of the conspiracy, it appeared, were these. First, the Belgae were afraid that, as the whole of Gaul was tranquilized, our army might advance against them. Secondly, they were egged on by sundry Gauls, some of whom, just as they had objected to the continuing presence of the Germans in Gaul, were irritated by the Roman army wintering in the country and settling there, while others, from instability and fickleness of temperament, hankered after a change of masters, and also by powerful individuals, especially those who had the means of hiring mercenaries, who, as often happened in Gaul, had been wont to usurp royal authority and found it less easy to achieve this end under our dominion. Alarmed by these messages and dispatches, Caesar raised two new legions in Cisalpine Gaul, and directed Quintus Pedius, one of his generals, to lead them, at the beginning of the fine weather, into further Gaul. As soon as forage began to be plentiful, he joined the army in person, and charged the Senones and the other Gauls who were contraminius with the Belgae, to find out what was going on in their country, and to keep him informed. They all agreed in reporting that levies were being raised, and that an army was concentrating. Caesar now thought it his duty to march against them without hesitation. After arranging for a supply of grain, he broke up his camp, and reached the Belgic frontier in about a fortnight. He arrived unexpectedly, and sooner than anyone had anticipated. The Remi, the nearest of the Belgae to Gaul, sent Icius and Andecumborius, the leading men of the tribe, as envoys, to say that they would place their lives and all that they possessed under the protection and at the disposal of the Roman people, that they had not shared the counsels of the other Belgae, or joined the conspiracy against the Roman people, and that they were prepared to give hostages, and to obey orders, to admit the Romans into their strongholds, and to supply them with corn and other necessaries that all the other Belgae were in arms, and that the Germans who dwelt on the near side of the Rhine had joined them, and that they were all possessed by such frenzy that the Remi could not deter even the Suessiones, their own kith and kin, who had the same rights and laws as themselves, and jointly owned the authority of one and the same magistrate from taking their side. On inquiring from the envoys the names of the belligerent tribes, their size and their military strength, Caesar collected the following information. Most of the Belgae were of German origin, and had crossed the Rhine at a remote period, and settled in Gaul on account of the fertility of the land. They had driven out the Gallic inhabitants, and were the only people who, at the time within the memory of our fathers, when the whole of Gaul was devastated, prevented the Teutoni and the Cimbri from invading their country. Inspired by the memory of that achievement, they arrogated to themselves great authority, and assumed the air of a great military power. 
With regard to their numbers, the Remi professed to have full information, for, being allied to them by blood and intermarriage, they had ascertained the strength of the contingent which each tribe had promised in the general council of the Belgae for the impending war. The Belovaci, who, from their valor, prestige, and numbers, were the most powerful of all, and could muster one hundred thousand armed men, had promised sixty thousand picked troops, and claimed the general direction of the campaign. The Suessiones were their own neighbors, and their territory was very extensive and very fertile. Within the memory of men still living, their king had been Diviciacus, the most powerful prince in the whole of Gaul, who was overlord not only of a large part of the Belgic territory, but also of Britain. The reigning king was Galba, who, on account of his integrity and sound judgment, was unanimously entrusted with the chief command. The Suessiones possessed twelve strongholds, and promised fifty thousand armed men. The same number was promised by the Nervii, who were considered by the Belgae themselves as the fiercest of them all, and who were the most remote. The Atrobates promised fifteen thousand, the Ambiani ten thousand, the Menapii seven thousand, the Caleti ten thousand, the Veliocases and the Viromandui jointly the same number, and the Aduatuki nineteen thousand the Condrusi, the Eberones, the Cairoisi, and the Paimani, who were known by the common appellation of Germans, promised, so the Remi believed, about 40,000. Caesar addressed the Remi in encouraging and in gracious terms, and ordered their entire council to meet him, and the children of the leading men to be brought to him as hostages. All these orders they carefully and punctually obeyed. He then earnestly impressed upon the Idoan Diviciacus, that it was most important, in the interest of the Republic, and indeed of the Idoans and Romans alike, to break up the enemy's forces, so as to avoid the necessity of engaging such a powerful host at once. The object could be attained if the Idui marched into the country of the Belovaci and proceeded to devastate their lands. With this injunction he dismissed Diviciacus. Finding that all the Belgic forces had concentrated and were marching against him, and learning from the reconnoitering parties which he had sent out, and from the Remi, that they were not far off, he pushed on rapidly, crossed the Aisne, which flows through the most distant part of the country of the Remi, and encamped near its banks. This movement protected one side of his camp by the banks of the river, secured his rear, and enabled his supplies to be brought up without danger by the Remi and the other tribes. The river was spanned by a bridge, at the head of which he established a strong post, while on the other side of the river he left six cohorts under one of his generals, Tertullius Sabinus. At the same time he ordered a camp to be constructed, with a rampart twelve feet high and a trench eighteen feet wide. Eight miles from the camp there was a town belonging to the Remi called Bibrox, the Belgae attacked it furiously on their march, and the garrison had difficulty in holding out that day. The following method of attacking forts is practiced by Gauls and Belgae alike. Surrounding the whole circuit of the fortifications with a multitude of men, they proceeded to hurl stones from all sides against the wall, and when they have cleared it, they lock their shields over their heads and advance right up to the gates and undermine the wall. In this case, the operation was easily performed. For, with such a huge host hurling stones and other missiles, no man had a chance of keeping his footing on the wall. When night stopped the attack, 
Ichius, a remen of the highest rank and very popular with his countrymen, who was acting as governor of the town, one of the envoys who had come to Caesar to sue for peace, sent him word that, unless a force were sent to his relief, he could hold out no longer. About midnight, Caesar, employing as guides the messengers who had come from Ichius, sent his Numidian and Cretan archers and Balearic slingers to Bibrax to relieve the inhabitants. On their arrival, the Remi, inspired by the hope of repelling the attack, became eager to take the offensive, and for the same reason the enemy abandoned the hope of taking the town. Accordingly, after lingering a short time in the neighborhood, ravaging the lands of the Remi, and burning all of the villages and homesteads within reach, they pushed on with all their forces towards Caesar's camp, and encamped barely two miles off. Judging by the smoke and watchfires, their camp extended more than eight miles in width. Caesar determined, in the first instance, to avoid an action, on account of the great numbers of the enemy, and of their extraordinary reputation for valor. Still, he daily tested in cavalry skirmishes the mettle of the enemy and the daring of our troops, and found that the latter were a match for them. The ground in front of his camp was naturally just suited for forming a line of battle. The hill on which the camp stood, rising gradually from the plain, extended, facing the enemy, over the exact space which the line would occupy. On either flank its sides descended abruptly, while in front it gradually merged in the plain by a gentle slope. On either side of the hill, Caesar drew a trench athwart about eight hundred paces long, and at the end of each trench erected a redoubt, in which he posted artillery to prevent the enemy when he had formed his line, from taking advantage of their great numerical superiority to attack his men in flank and surround them. Having done this, he left his two newly raised legions in camp, so that they might be available at any point as a reserve, and drew up the remaining six in line of battle in front of the camp. The enemy likewise had marched their forces out of the camp and formed them in line. There was a morass of no great size between our army and that of the enemy. The enemy waited to see whether our men would cross it, while our men, weapons in hand, were ready to attack them in case they crossed first, when their movements would be impeded. Meanwhile, a skirmish of horse was going on between the two lines. Neither side would cross first, and the skirmish resulting in favor of our men, Caesar withdrew his infantry into the camp. Forthwith, the enemy moved rapidly from their position to gain the river Aisne which, as the narrative has shown, was in the rear of our camp. There they discovered a ford, and endeavored to throw a part of their force across, intending, if possible, to storm the redoubt commanded by the general, Quintus Titurius, and break down the bridge, or, failing this, to devastate the lands of the Remi, who were very useful to us in the campaign, and to cut off our troops from supplies. Caesar, on receiving information from Titurius, took the whole of his cavalry, his light-armed Numidians, slingers, and archers, across the bridge, and pushed on rapidly against them. A fierce combat took place at the spot where they were crossing. Our men attacked the enemy in the river, while their movements were impeded, and killed a great number of them. The rest made a most daring attempt to get across over their dead bodies, but they were beaten back by a shower of missiles, while the leading division, who had crossed already, were surrounded by the cavalry and killed. The enemy realized that they had deceived themselves in expecting to storm the stronghold and cross the river. They saw that the Romans would not advance and fight on an unfavorable position, 
and their supply of grain was beginning to run short. They therefore called a council of war, and decided that the best course would be for the several contingents to return home, and rally from all parts to the defense of the people, whose country the Roman army invaded first. They would thus fight in their own, and not in foreign territory, and have the benefit of home-grown supplies. Among other reasons, they were led to adopt this resolution by the knowledge that Diviciacus and the Idui were approaching the country of the Belovaci, and the latter could not be induced to remain any longer and refrain from helping their own people. Having come to this decision, they moved out of camp in the second watch with great uproar and confusion. There was no order, no discipline, everybody trying to get the first place on the road and being in a hurry to reach home, so that their departure resembled a rout. Caesar was promptly informed of what they had done by scouts, fearing an ambuscade, for he did not yet clearly see the reason for their departure. He kept his army, including the cavalry, in camp. At daybreak the report was confirmed by patrols, and Caesar sent on ahead the whole of his cavalry, commanded by two generals, Quintus Pedius and Lucius Aruncuelius Cata, to retard the rear guard at the same time ordering Titus Labienus to follow in support with three legions. This force attacked the rear guard and pursued them for many miles, killing a large number of the fugitives. For a while the rearmost ranks, when overtaken, made a stand, and gallantly resisted the attack of our infantry. The van, fancying themselves out of reach of danger, and not being restrained by necessity or discipline, broke their ranks when they heard the distant cries and ran for their lives. Thus our men slaughtered them in numbers, without any risk to themselves, as long as daylight lasted. Towards sunset they left off, and returned in obedience to instructions, to camp. On the following day, before the enemy could recover from their panic flight, Caesar led the army into the country of the Suessiones, who were contraminous with the Remi, and pushed on by a forced march to the stronghold of Noviodunum. Hearing that it was undefended, he attempted, immediately after his arrival, to storm it. But the moat was so broad, and the wall so high, that, notwithstanding the small numbers of the garrison, he was unable to carry the position. After entrenching his camp, he proceeded to form a line of sheds, and to make the necessary preparations for a siege. On the following night, before he could resume operations, the whole host of the fugitive Suessiones thronged into the town. The sheds were speedily brought up, earth was shot into the moat, and towers were erected, and the Gauls, alarmed by the magnitude of the works, which they had never seen or even heard of before, and also by the swift energy of the Romans, sent envoys to Caesar proposing to surrender. The Remi interceded for their lives, and their prayer was granted. Caesar took the leading men of the tribe, as well as two of King Galba's own sons, as hostages. And after all the arms in the town had been delivered up, he accepted the surrender of the Suessiones, and marched into the country of the Belovaci, who threw themselves with all their belongings into the stronghold of Bratus Pantium. When Caesar and his army were about five miles off, the older men all came out, stretched out their hands to him, and declared that they were ready to place themselves under his protection and in his power, and that they were not in arms against the Roman people. In like manner, when he had approached the stronghold and was encamping on its outskirts, 
the women and children stretched out their hands from the wall in the native fashion and begged the romans for peace Iviciacus, who after the retreat of the belgae had disbanded the Aeduan forces and returned to caesar interceded for the suppliants the Bellovaci, he said had at all times been dependents on the Aedui and in amicable relations with them but at the instigation of their leaders who said that the Aedui had been enslaved by caesar and had to put up with ill usage and insults of every kind they had abandoned their connection with them and taken up arms against the roman people the ringleaders realizing the magnitude of the disaster which they had brought upon their country had escaped to britain not only the Bellovaci, but also the Aedui on their behalf would beg caesar to treat them with a forbearance and humanity for which he was distinguished by doing so he would increase the authority of the Aedui among the belgae generally for the Aedui commonly relied on their assistance and resources to carry on any wars in which they happened to be engaged caesar said he would spare their lives and take them under his protection out of respect for diviciacus and the Aedui. but as the tribe ranked high among the belgae and had a very large population he required six hundred hostages after they had delivered over and all the arms brought out of the town and piled caesar marched from bratus pontium to the territory of the ambiani who surrendered unreservedly without delay their territory was conterminous with that of the nervii caesar made inquiries about the character manners and customs of this people and collected the following information traders were not allowed to enter their country they would not permit the importation of anything in the shape of wine or other luxuries believing that courage was enfeebled by these indulgences and manly vigor enervated they were a fierce brave people and railing at the other belgae and accusing them of having surrendered to the romans and made shipwreck of their ancestral valor they vowed that they would not send envoys or accept peace on any terms end of book two chapters one through fifteen